one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is the last laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from the Daily Beast, and this week we are continuing our series of episodes with 2023 Emmy nominees by listening back to one of my all-time favorite episodes of this podcast with the one and only Martin Short. Marty, as his famous friends and now I apparently call him, recently scored his 15th Emmy nomination for his lead role on Only Murders in the Building, which just happens to be returning for its highly anticipated third season today, August 8th, on Hulu. I had a really fun chat with his longtime collaborator, Andrea Martin, on a recent episode of this podcast about her expanded role in the third season of the show. So I definitely recommend you check that out as well if you haven't already. But when I talked to Marty back in the summer of 2020, Only Murders was still on the horizon. So we spent a lot of our conversation going deep on other highlights from his illustrious career, from SNL to Jiminy Glick to Father of the Bride, as well as his surprisingly dark and also Emmy-nominated turn as a Me Too predator on The Morning Show. This is a really special one, so let's get into it. Here's me with Martin Short. Well, congratulations on the uh, Emmy nomination for The Morning Show. That's pretty exciting. Thank you. Thank you. This was kind of a rare dramatic role for you, and it's, you're, you're nominated for guest actor in a, in a drama. So Right. I did a season of Damages a few years ago. That was the last probably foray. I don't know. I, I, you know, I'm a Canadian actor. You know, I spent the first three decades of my life just living in Canada solely. Longer than that, probably 35 years. And in Canada, what appeals to you as an actor, typical Canadian actor, is the way you make a living, which you just do all three mediums at once. And it also keeps it more interesting if you have the ability to do that. So to say, if someone says to me, oh, you can only do comedy, then I'm intrigued to do something more than that. But I, obviously, I, I think if you can do comedy, you're kind of gifted. And by the Lord, to uh, make people laugh, that's a, that's a tremendous... Uh, gift. Yeah, there's this interesting thing where a lot of I know a lot of comedians have said they think comedy is harder than doing drama, but drama is often what gets rewarded more, you know, when you think about the Oscars and and things like that. So do you think there's a paradox there? Right. I mean, there's a reason Cary Grant never won an Oscar. There's a reason that with the exception of Annie Hall, there I'm sure sure there are a few exceptions. I think it's because people look at comedy and say, most people say, "Hey, I'm pretty funny." You know, I I I mean, in the carpool, I am hilarious, you know. <laughs> and so if they see, you know, Steve Martin being funny, they say, well, he's funny. I, I can be funny, too, you know. But no one says, I can be dramatic. <laughs> it's not as profound, exciting, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I really love your performance in that show. And I'm curious what they told you about the character when they offered it to you. Is it what did you kind of know going in and, and what made you want to do it? You know, they left a lot. To, they didn't say, this is based on blank. Uh, they kind of left it to, how do you feel? Who, whom do you feel it could be based on? So what I found interesting is this perception. And I think that The Morning Show did a brilliant job of it, actually, in later episodes, where any form of a predator feels that he is a victim, feels that she was just as turned on to me as I was to her, even though there's a 45-year age difference, not in The Morning Show, but in many cases. Because people delude themselves. They say, hey, you know, and I'm still looking pretty good now that I'm 74. You know, <laughs> they just do that. Do you feel like you had to kind of get in the head of that guy to have sympathy for someone in that position in order to play it? I didn't have to get into his head in the sense of um, thinking it was a great guy who had been un unfairly uh, accused. No, he was a deep predator. Uh, but where I went was the idea that everyone believes that they are vindicated, that they are a victim, that they have accused, been accused of something that, if, boy, if you'd been there, you would see how innocent I was. And people, you know, when OJ got out of that car after he got released with the Bible in his hand, I remember thinking, I wonder if he really now believes that he didn't do it, you know? 
I mean, is Donald Trump mentally ill or does he really believe the stuff he says? That, that's the age-old question. And I think it's kind of intriguing to think if you're going to play that person, they really believe it. That scene is so great. The first scene that you have with Steve Carell's character where there's this great nuance between what, what he sees as what he's done and what, you, and what he sees as you and that there's this real difference and there's this great kind of moment where he, he labels you a predator, your character a predator. And it's this devastating moment for for your character where you really see, you realize that he sees you in a different way than you think, than you see yourself. I have an idea. We do a documentary. You direct it. I do the interviews. We make them look at it. We make them look at us. We ask to be a part of the conversation. I mean, we did something wrong. Okay. What? If that's the way you feel, fine. But explain it to me because I don't fucking get it. A conversation with the victims. Yes. And I think we can do it in a really smart way. I don't think we refer to them as victims. I think that's a concession. I don't think it's something we want to concede. No, 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 no. We do call them victims. And then we prove why they're not. I'm not sure that we should use gotcha journalism with the women who accused us. Oh, fuck that. Jesus. They did it with us. Gotcha. I'll fuck you for the role and then I'll win an Oscar. And then, oh, now I'm 50 and irrelevant so i'll scream rape and then i'll force a settlement you know as if that lazy lay deserves a cent no no you're wrong wow was that real gotcha i said it was 20 oh i was only 15. bullshit and then why do you look like a tired old bag and i'd love i'd kill to see her birth certificate i think that was a profound moment for dick lundy the character and also for Steve Carell's character, because he sits back and says, I might have been inappropriate given the era. You know, there's always a caveat, uh, but I'm not Harvey Weinstein here. And that's the mistake. That's the delusion. And you and Steve are two of the funniest performers, I think, who've, who've ever been on, on television or film. And you're in the scene with him that's very deadly serious. Was there anything strange about doing that where you're, you know, these two actors who can turn it on pretty easily and be funny to, to kind of hold that back and really let that go and have this very real conversation? No, I, I think that neither one of us are stand-ups, for example. We're both actually from Second City. Steve's an alumni from uh, Chicago and I'm from Toronto. I think that if you view yourself as a comic actor, then part of that phrase is actor. So I don't think you sit back and say, oh, I should spit water out here. <laughs> It'll be fun. I think that's not the job you've taken on. I do think the mistake sometimes happens when you are have a history of comedy and then you do something dramatic that you must be very serious and never smile. And believe me, Hitler smiled. Yeah. And you were able to find comedic moments even in the, even in the seriousness of the show. Right. Because just because they're predators doesn't mean they can't be playful with each other. And that's sometimes I think if you tend to whitewash a scene as to it is blank before you start the scene, that's a mistake. Because both Steve and I are improvisers, too. So you want to go into that was a multi-page scene. You want to go into something like that with an open mind of what you can experience just from working with that actor, listening to that other actor. Suddenly, the way you might have thought you were going to play it is played differently. And then you have that other great scene later on uh, in the series where you do a big song and dance number. So you really get to show you really got to show off two sides <laughs> of your uh, of your skill set on that show. Exactly. You said they didn't tell you who the part was based on. Did you come up with that on your own? Did you have ideas in your head about who this might be? Well, I mean, sure, you go through different lists that maybe help you, maybe not even obvious choices, maybe choices of someone who is an accomplished director, but hasn't gone, been me too or is indeed a predator. So you can apply one to the other, imagining how he might feel where he suddenly brought down. So I want to talk about your most recent Emmy nomination before this was for your special with Steve Martin, um, which I loved as well. I think we got to talk a couple years ago around when the when that came out on Netflix. Are you in touch with him much during this time? Are you able... Oh, every day. You're not able to work together probably in the same way that you, that you once did. And you were supposed to actually be on tour a bit this summer, right? Right. Um, no, we talk almost every day. We're very close. Just silly things, Zooms. I know you were working on a new show with him. Um, I, I assume you still are. Is that is that still happening? Or Absolutely. It's supposed to start in October in New York. 
filming. And so what, what is the, what's the premise of that? It's a, it's more of a scripted show, right? It's called Only Murders in the Building. And it's about three people who, you know, one of those kind of upscale apartment buildings in New York. They see each other in the elevator, they kind of nod, but they never really speak. They don't even know each other's names. And then you find out that each one of them goes to their individual apartments and just turns on true crime and obsessed. And then one time they're in the elevator, but there's a fourth person. And then they find out that fourth person is killed. And then they're determined to solve it. But they make a pact. Only murders in the building will they solve because <laughs> they can't bother to go outside. Too old. It's you and Steve and, and who else is the third? Well, there's a third person that's been confirmed, but I can't. I don't know oh. if I can release it yet. Oh, okay. So there you go. So you're supposed to start filming in the in the fall. Are you hopeful that that's right. actually going to happen? Because I know there's a lot I of am. questions. I am. I mean, what, I, I, what's I, I going have on. to. I think we'd all have to thoroughly know how that's going to be done. But assuming all the cards fall in place, that's when they'd like to start. Yeah. You've been working with Steve now for so long. What do you remember about the, the first time that you actually met him? Well, the first time I met him, which was very, very brief, he was hosting the new show. This would be 1984. I was on SCTV and he was doing it with Catherine O'Hara. And I mean, she was on the show, too. And I remember going to her dressing room midway through taping. Steve races back to do a change and kind of looks at me and says, oh, hi. And we shake hands and that was it. Then the next time I met him was in May of 85. And I went to his house to pick up a script for Three Amigos. And I said to him, uh, he's a major art collector. And there was a Picasso here, <laughs> Hockney there. And I said to him, how did you get this rich? Because I've seen your work. And then he said, can you get this script to Marty Short? <laughs> So that really set the tone from the beginning on the on the way it you did. guys uh, interact with each other. Playful tone, yeah. I loved the first line of Steve's uh, tribute to Carl Reiner in the New York Times, which for anyone who didn't see it, he said, uh, he wrote, I've known only two perfect people in my life. One is that son of a bitch, Martin Short. The other is Carl <laughs> Reiner. What did you think when you when you saw that? It's it's uh, typically um, <laughs> Steve complimented. Yeah, it's a, it's a combina- it's good combination of a compliment and, a, and an insult. I knew Carl as well. So that's that's a great, great, great compliment. So you mentioned SCTV, which was really, you know, your breakthrough TV project, I imagine, um, back in the day. And that was also your, your first Emmy Award, I believe, was for uh, writing for, for SCTV. That's right. And it's also where a lot of your, your most famous characters originated. And I think one of the big differences between SCTV and SNL is that there was no audience. So you didn't really know how things were landing in the same way. How, how much of an impact do you think that had on, on the, what it, the product? I think that was a tremendous impact because you can be the greatest comedic auteur out there and think that your idea and your character and what you're satirizing is just damn genius. And if you put it up in front of an audience in SNL and no one laughs, you're the first person to say, we're going to cut that, right? You know, (laughs) but in SCTV, you didn't have that. So what determined what made the air were some of the funniest people ever in comedy, you know? So the inmates did run the asylum and uh, the show and its content was determined not by people, others, but by this smart group. So we were assuming that everyone in the audience were as comedically hip as we. That was the assumption. Yeah, and it is really different because when a sketch gets cut at SNL, it is, it's like the audience is making the decision and there's a question of whether the audience is always right or not. Right, right. Or they're going to get something or... And SNL, I mean, that's the only way they can do it. They're a live show. They deliberately go three or four sketches long, including film pieces. And then after the dress, they're given this information. And they don't want to present a live show where no one's laughing. (laughs) Yeah, that wouldn't be good. Psychologically bad, yeah. (laughs) So at at a certain point, uh, you made the decision to move from SCTV to Saturday Night Live. How did that happen? Because I know it wasn't, this was during the season that, or one of the seasons that Lorne Michaels wasn't there, right? Right. Lorne was not there for five years from 80 to 85. And, well, I was asked. I was asked by Dick Ebersol to come on to SCTV. We were finishing or to SNL, Actually, they had yeah. approached me the year before, but uh, my philosophy was as long as SCTV had home, I was never going to leave it. And um, then we went off the air. We did a season on Cinemax, our last season, ending in the spring of 84. And then they approached me again. And they said, we're interested in you and Billy Crystal and Christopher Guest and Harry Shear." And I went, well, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, Final Cut was out that summer. <laughs> yeah. I said, yeah, okay, well, you'll let me know when they say yes. 
<laughs> and then they phoned up and said they've all said yeah. yes. And I went, wow. So I was like the surprise at this press mm-hmm. conference. Did you know them personally before that, those guys? I knew Billy. I knew Billy because my wife had been on soap with Billy as an actress. And I knew Harry a little bit through Paul Schaefer, their close friends. And I didn't know Chris at all. Yeah. I know you've said that your experience at SNL was probably pr- different from a lot of other people's because you had already had this SCTV experience. You know, you, you were coming in with some with a little more clout maybe than some of the, the you know, young people who come in who no one's ever seen before. I mean, I suppose I was coming on with more clout, but I, I didn't feel it. That's not what, you know, if you're sitting Tuesday night and you don't have an idea in your head and the read-throughs the next day, you don't sit back and say, yeah, but look at all the clout I have. <laughs> you feel like, uh, you know, a loser. But I would say what made my experience different than others was the fact that I had a one-year contract. And by having a one-year contract, you really felt like every show was a special. Every, you know, you had to deliver every week. So it, it put even more pressure on yourself. I think. Yeah. I mean, the way that it usually works for people now, I believe it's it's either it's a six or a seven year contract. Yeah. So they know if they're light this week, it's fine. Something will happen next week. You know? But it's also it's kind of a one way deal, right? Because they can also like they you have to stay if they want you to stay, but they can let you go after the end of <laughs> each year. Well, it's like most work. <laughs> yeah. Most jobs are that designed that way. And you did decide to leave after just that one season, which I think a lot of people are probably still surprised when they find that out if they don't know that you were only on the show for one season because I think your impact was quite huge on the on the show. Oh, thank you. What prompted that decision? Why did you decide that, that you didn't want to stay longer? It was always the plan. That was just always what you what you wanted to do. All of us had one-year contracts. I had done SCTV for three years before that. I had a new baby, girl, daughter. You know, when you do SNL, you're never home if you're a writer, performer. And that was kind of the same for SCTV. So I was just ready to do other things, you know. Was your family in New York with you while you were on SNL? Yes. But then we also owned a home in Toronto. So those Toronto stays would become longer because I was never there. Yeah. Do you think that they wanted you to stay on more at SNL? Well, SNL was switching. I think that they would have wanted me to stay, but it was now, uh, Lauren was coming back. So it was now going to be a totally different cast, a totally different show. But again, it was like when you go to university for four years, most people say, I'm graduating. They don't say, and now on to my master's. They take a year off or, you know. <laughs> was there ever any talk? Because they, they did start making SNL movies at a certain point with characters, spinoffs. Was there ever, you know, going to be an Ed Grimley movie or any other movies based on any of your characters? No, I, I never I never felt that that was a great idea, personally. I mean, I always thought that those sketches were their own art form. You know, I think that a kind of brilliant 60-second commercial can be worth, be more valuable than a mediocre movie. And so the length, the, the movie aspect of it didn't make me feel like, oh, I want to do an Ed Grimley feature film. I thought, kind of thought Ed Grimley lived very well at six and a half minutes. Um, and even though Lauren wasn't there when you were there, I mean, you did kind of develop a relationship with him, right, over the years, because you've now, you've come back on the show so much. Yes. Well, I first met Lauren, I think, backstage of Godspell in Toronto in 73 or something. But, and then I knew Lauren through Gilda Radner. And then remember, Lauren executive produced and co-wrote Three Amigos. So that's when you probably really worked with him closely for the first time? Right. That was the first time I officially worked with him, right? Before we move on from Gilda, since you mentioned her, can you share sort of one memory of, of Gilda Radner, that of your time with her, that, that stands out to you? Well, Gilda was just kind of magical. She was this odd person that could walk into a room and every girl wanted her to be her best friend and every guy wanted to go out with her. And she was just adorable and funny and complicated and in the moment, self-deprecating as all really funny people are, and just joyful, joyful. The Gilda that people fell in love with in SNL was the Gilda that one knew before that. Yeah, and everybody wanted to go out with her, and you got to. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I mentioned later on, you know, you've, you've appeared on the show a lot, and you hosted, I think, twice by yourself, and then once sort of in a, in a group. What is the experience of hosting that show like compared to when you were on it? Well... You know, I never wanted to be that heavy in the show. I ended up doing stuff that I had probably written or co-written. So I was good for about two sketches a show. And because I was odder, there wasn't a tendency to just, if you're another writer, put me in it. 
that was like putting garlic into a egg sandwich or something. <laughs> you would really stand out. Well, it was just that was a perception anyway. I mean, I'm trying to rationalize why no one ever, <laughs> <laughs> no one cast you. In no one cast me in anything. I, I can't, it can't have been my breath. I often tended to be done by about ten, twelve, ten. You know, that's nice. When you're a host, you're never done. And even when you, the last time I hosted, I remember going back to my dressing room because I wasn't in the news and then there was a musical number. So I didn't have a lot of, I had, you know, it seemed like a 13 minute break there. And when I go to the dressing room, I see three writers standing outside. They're going to go through a sketch that's on at 20 to one and cut this line and that line and that line. And just look at the cue cards because the show was long. And when the show's long, something's got to be cut. I mean, they can potentially time it out, but things change in performance. And so with the host, he's never really done to one. And it is an odd job in general for cast or host because the last hour and a half of the work week is the only thing that counts. <laughs> yeah, most jobs are not like that. Yeah, usually you're just thinking, which bar do I hit? I remember you also, you brought back Ed Grimley a few years ago in that sketch, the tape sketch that also had Donald Trump dancing in it. Oh, yeah. With, uh, <laughs> but but you, I think you weren't actually in the same, uh, you didn't actually tape with him, right? No, I didn't. How do you kind of feel about, yeah. Although he had been there, the, you could tell he'd been there because the cologne. <laughs> you could still smell him. Unbelievable. <laughs> the lamps of China. How did you feel at the time and maybe now about their decision to have him host? Because it was very controversial, I think, at the time and maybe even more so after he was elected. Oh, that's a Lorne question. I think that, I, I think Lorne would say something to the effect of we are not, although it's perceived as, we are not a political show. We will, Donald Trump's running for the presidency, let him host. I think the same invitation went to Hillary and she appeared in the, that season she didn't host. She maybe didn't want to be on the on the whole show until 1 a.m. <laughs> well, not many have hosted. I can't remember another candidate. But as I recall, he didn't have the nomination. That, I don't think he had the nomination. No, it was it was early in the in the process. I think everyone thought it was he was still a joke and that nothing would come of it. And that's probably part of what why they decided to have him host. Well, there are those who still feel that works. That description works. Yeah. Coming up. Martin Short is widely known as the best late-night talk show guest of all time. He breaks down how he got so good. And later, we go deep on my favorite character of his, Jiminy Glick. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're enjoying this episode, please hit subscribe. We have had so many incredible comedians on this show, including Sarah Silverman, Mike Birbiglia, Maria Bamford, Patton Oswald, and so many others. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to the show. So after SNL, Three Amigos was kind of your next big thing that you did. What was that experience like for you to now be starring in your in your first movie or co-starring with Steve Martin and, and Chevy Chase? It was an amazing first film to do because you're now put into equal billing to two massive movie stars, you know. They were kind of bigger than, than you were at that time or you, you felt like they were so much more famous? Absolutely. I was the cheap amigo. <laughs> I was either that or, or extra catering amigo. But they were big movie stars. They were at the height of where you could be. Well, you 
dirt-eating piece of slime, you scum-sucking pig, you son of a motherless goat. Who are you? Wherever there is injustice, you will find us. Wherever there is suffering, we'll be there. Tell us we will die like dogs. What? Tell us we will die like dogs. You will die like dogs. No, we will not die like dogs. We will fight like lions, because we are the Free Amigos. And so it was interesting because we were supposed to be best friends and I didn't know them, either one, really. But it was fast. Our bonding was fast, you know, through laughs. We all laughed. And, you know, you started, in my case, doing an impersonation of someone relaxed <laughs> and then you become relaxed. I was curious about that because I, I, I know you're very famous for your talk show appearances, your late night appearances. And, you know, you've been called the best late night uh, guest of all time and, and, and all these things. Well, that's by my own agent, but I get it. Thank you. Thank you. Were you nervous the first times that you went on these shows, the first time you went on Letterman, the first time you went on Carson? Well, again, I remember the first talk show that I had in the States was Dave Letterman. It was in December of 1982. And his show had started the February before. I don't remember being wildly nervous because I, I realized that at some point in the 70s, when I was about 27 or something, that being nervous did not help me. So I almost willed it away, especially if you, n no one laughs at a nervous comedian. Well, the exception of a thousand <laughs> that I can now think of, Woody Allen, people like that. But I mean, even Woody was, he played nervous, but there was more confidence into what he was doing. It was- You had to project some confidence in order to, to be funny. Right, so I thought a talk show would be, like the, I, the gimmick would be to capture yourself at a dinner party. That moment when you're just suddenly on a roll at the dinner party. Uh, but you don't have an hour and a half to ramp up to it, so you have to figure out what you're going to do. So again, kind of doing an impersonation of someone relaxed. And uh, But I remember the first Dave show was not tricky, as you'd think, because Paul Schaefer is one of my oldest, closest friends, and there was Paul. And, and Dave was a huge SCTV fan. So he was, even though we were in Cinemax and I was not known in the United States, he was very, very enthusiastic and positive and it couldn't have been easier and then uh, and I that relaxed me and then I was able to do the next one uh, what do you hope for yourself now uh, singing is uh, not singing is over yeah. singing is finished um, I would like to keep doing the show I'd love no actually I would love to do a Broadway musical it's something I'd always like to do didn't you audition for a, a, a play once? Yeah, very, I once, uh, <laughs> well, I, you know, last spring I thought, you know, I'd done a couple of TV series and I thought, you know, I want to try the real live stage, get to, back to my roots. And I came to New York and I auditioned for The Tempest for the public theater and they said, we see Trinculo as Jerry Lewis. Can you read this as Jerry Lewis? And <laughs> I, it wasn't exactly how I, so I had to, it's not a wish no shop to bear off any weather at all. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> You didn't do uh, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson until, I believe, 1988. Was that something that you had dreamed of, of going on that show, or were you trying to get on it before then? No, that was just me being stupid. I loved Johnny Carson more than life. Grew up with him. Used to, I remember one time he was telling a story about picking up a friend of his at LAX. I thought, oh, what would it be like to be Johnny's friend if he would just, like, pick you up? Or you'd phone his house and just say, hey, just tell him it's me, you know, to be that close. And because of that... I decided, oh, I don't need to do Johnny Carson. I'll only be hip and late night and do Dave. And then there was a rumor that Johnny was going to leave. And so in January of 88, I did my first Carson. And he was so great and so loose and so funny and that laugh and <laughs> rubbing under his eye and so supportive. And then between that and when he left four years later, I did it eight, nine times. You wish you had done it more uh, earlier on? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. You made so many of these appearances on so many late night shows. Is there one that, that really stands out to you as sort of the, the top of the top of success in terms of a successful late night talk show appearance? Oh, they tend to be your first and last. I think my first and last Carsons were pretty strong. I, I think that when I would go on Dave, on those shows, I would do musical numbers. And uh, there was one we did, if Dave's Heart Will Go On. It was after Dave's heart attack or bypass. We really, we blew the budget on that one. It was a big, 
gospel singers and dancers and special effects. And I remember that one. There must be something kind of strange about when you start out, you're younger than these guys and you look up to them and they seem like these larger than life figures. And now you're going on these shows and I think a lot of the hosts are looking up to you and, and see you in that way. Do you feel that? And is that, is that strange for you at all? Well, you know, it's interesting. I have personal relationships with a lot of the hosts. And I think once you get to know someone, I'm talking from their perspective, they might have you know, growing up with me in, in 80s movies. But when you spend time with someone, enough time and have dinner, the, the age thing separates or the intimidation element goes away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when I interviewed you the last time, the headline was something like the ageless Martin Short. <laughs> and uh, do you feel ageless? I mean, that's kind of, it's something that's been put on you, I guess, by, by me and, and others. Oh, well, thank you. Do I feel ageless? Well, I, I think you feel as you get older, um, the only reason you feel older is if you have aches, pains, can't run anymore. You can look at a litany of things and say, gee, I remember I used to be able to do that. And I don't really have that. I don't know whether that's DNA or staying in good shape, but I just don't. I don't look at myself and say, oh, I can't make that change in two seconds and come out in a fat suit and then do I can't do that. That was 10 years. I don't. I'm not there yet. So you don't really, I don't think age has yet become a big factor in my life. On the late night TV stuff, were you ever considered to host any of those shows? I mean, I know you eventually had a a daytime talk show. I remember there was talk that I heard through agents about me, I guess, replacing Letterman. So this is back to 92 or something. So this is when Conan took over for Letterman. Correct. Yeah. I mean, there was talk in the sense that an NBC executive thought it was a good idea. It was not something I wanted to do. Why not? I hadn't done Broadway yet. I wanted to do that. I was making movies. I was about to do a television show. I was another television show. I was, And also, I, I, I think I would have had to move to New York. And I had little kids in L.A. Yeah, it would have been a very different trajectory for your career and, and for your life, I imagine, if you had No, done. I mean, also, you remember, if you're in the movies and you get to take three and four months off, and when you're raising kids, that's, uh, let's go to our cottage in Canada from June till September. That's, that's a luxury that you acknowledge is unique and appreciate. Well, I imagine Conan O'Brien is uh, thankful that you decided that you weren't interested in that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no one, believe me, no one made the offer. It was just a rumor. Speaking of movies, one of my favorites of yours uh, that I actually just rewatched with my uh, family uh, the other night is Father of the Bride, also with Steve Martin. Oh, yeah. Where did that character come from? Was it in the script in that way or how much of that came from, from you? Because it- It was in the script that way. I remember when we, the first one was done in 91 and and the first scene I did was in my office and they come to meet me and we shot forever that scene (laughs) because no one knew, including me and certainly including Charles Shire, the director, and Nancy Myers, the producer and writers, and or Steve or Diane or, or Kimberly, anyone knew what, how big this should be. The concept was that the father of the bride, Steve, was so alienated from the process that they could understand this wedding coordinator, but Steve couldn't. Yeah, that's a challenge. But then the audience had to. Yeah. But they had to understand why Steve couldn't. So I remember we would do so many takes, and we it, we kept turning it down like a faucet. Let's do one a little less. What's a little less? And I remember at a certain point, Steve said, well, now I don't get it. I un- understand it perfectly. <laughs> and so they ended up going high end when they made the choices, you know. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, I wonder when if the early audiences, you know, watching it the first time, how many people in the audience got all of it and how many didn't. But maybe it kind of works either way. Oh, uh, and then also, you know, People come up to me in airports and say, I love when you talked about the wedding cock. And I said, <laughs> I, did, I did. But I think it's saying the wedding cock. The wedding cock. <laughs> so if someone wants to hear wedding cock, God bless them. Now, so you have not made up your list yet, but you know that you want the wedding at home on January 6th, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Excuse me? Yes, we would. We would like a wedding at home on January the 6th. Mm, I love the weddings at the homes. They're very personable, very warm, because they're fabulous. Oh, so, January 6th, give us seven months. Uh-oh, hello, that's five months. <laughs> five months, not much. But that don't bother me so much, because it's a little bit tight, but we can do it, and it will be spectacular. <laughs> As I worry about the second, don't worry about that. So now, let's see. This is what I suggest. I suggest that we select the cake first. Okay. Because you know, the cake 
more often determine what kind of wedding that you end up having. So let's just choose a cake, okay? Okay. Choose, choose, choose the what? The cake, Dad. The other one I wanted to ask you about is uh, Clifford, which has become something of a cult sensation uh, over the years, I think. Maybe didn't do as well as you would have liked to in the moment, but... Well, the studio was bankrupt. That didn't help. <laughs> Whose idea was it for you to play a 10-year-old boy? It was actually a friend of mine, Stephen Campman, who suggested it. And we did a screen test and just to see what it would be. And it was funny. It was odd and heightened, but it was just fun and funny. So that's when it started. I mean, it was, you know, we tried to do everything like if there was a scene where a dance, Clifford goes to a teen dance, all the dancers were 6'4", <laughs> you know, stuff like that. What do you remember about working with Charles Grodin? Because you had such great uh, chemistry with him. Oh, I love Charles Grodin. Love Chuck Grodin. He's just the best. Hilarious, really funny, dry, loose, will try anything. Great improviser. In that film when he says, look at me like a human boy. That wasn't in the script. All right, now listen to me. Listen to me. Here's the deal. You go to your room, write a confession that I will take to the police, and I will not send you back to your parents. And you tell Sarah that you and I are the best of friends. And we are, aren't we? Shut up. But if you even look at me funny, if you do one thing that I find weird, which is, you know, like your middle name, see, you're doing it right now. Can you just act like a human boy for one minute here? Look at me like a person. You can't do it for more than a few seconds. Look at me like a human boy. Don't mess around with me. You're going to be back on that plane. You understand me? I understand that I love you. Is that one that you feel like you get a lot of people coming up to you and asking about? Yes, it's amazing. And you can always judge. It's like if someone's 35, it means that they used to get high and watch Clifford <laughs> at university. Yeah, that's, you know? that's about where I'm at. So. Um, 45-year-old guys, three amigos. 32-year-old women, father of the bride. <laughs> you kind of know when someone's coming up to you what they're, what's going to come out of their mouth or what, what, their, what their favorite thing is going to be. Yeah, 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 a little bit. Yeah. So one thing that I really want to delve into as we get towards the end here is um, Jiminy Glick who is just, I think, one of the greatest character creations uh, that you've done and that anyone's <laughs> Thank done. You. The clips and the, the episodes are harder to find than you would than I would have hoped. I found a bunch of them on YouTube, um, but they're kind of all over the place. And, and it's not, does it all exist somewhere in, in, a, in a way that could be released or that would, that would be more accessible to people? I guess I own it. <laughs> yeah, so how come you're not putting it out? I don't know. I always think YouTube is covers it, yeah. but now I'm hearing yeah, uh, no, the Yeah, no, I opposite. think you need it, it could be on Netflix, it could be on Hulu, you know, something like that. I think people would, would be into it. Well, it was not Comedy Central, so it would oh, have to yeah, be on Comedy, Comedy Central. Central yeah. Yeah. What's the origin story of Jiminy Glick? I was doing a talk show for King World, 1999-2000, and we wanted to do lots of remote pieces. And I remember I went to makeup for a couple hours and put a fake nose on. I went to the uh, farmer's market. I was going to work behind a fish thing and cut it up and just hand people fish. And we were going to see their reactions. And, and people were coming up and saying, can I have your autograph, Mr. Short? And I went, ah, that's a drag. So then I had made a movie called Pure Luck in 1990. I love that one as well. In that movie, I'm stung by a bee. And I have a reaction and my face swells up. And my wife was even on the set. And she said, I can't see you in there. I can't actually see you in there. So I thought about that nine years later. I thought maybe we should do that kind of prosthetic where uh, you don't see me. That would be great. And that could allow me to, I remember going to the Emmys and talking to Jack Lemmon. And I, he didn't know that I wasn't a real person. So that became the look. And it was really to be a correspondent so we could get more stars on the mm -hmm. show. So at first you actually were, you were trying to kind of fool the stars that you were talking to in a way that they wouldn't know who you are. Well, I, to a degree, you know, in that situation, there's a publicist on a red carpet at the Emmys saying, okay, this is Martin yeah. Shorter doing a character <laughs> for his TV show, pretend he's a guy. Does it work better when the person is trying to be funny and kind of play along or does it work better if they are kind of playing it straight? No, no, no. That's when it doesn't work. No, 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 no. The gimmick is you're on a junket and this moron with power has come in and you have to sit with them. Are there uh, celebrities who you interviewed as Jiminy Glick who you feel like handled it particularly well or particularly not well? Well, I won't mention the particularly not yeah. well ones. That would be rude. They were my guests. But <laughs> I would say the, the well ones were endless. There were so many people that got 
the gimmick of how to do that. You know, in primetime Glick, we would do an interview in front of an audience, and then we would go out and about with Jiminy Glick, and then we'd go to either a hotel and we'd set up. So that both the in- types of interviews had different feels. John Lovitz was on... And he's telling a story, and I pretend to fall asleep and fall to the ground <laughs> in the middle of it. I know that John's going to have a funny reaction off that. So that's And in the one-on-ones, it was really like, again, this is a famous interviewer. You're kind of stuck with him, and you got to do it and just go with it. And, and Jiminy would be like, I remember he said once of Charlie Rose, what did he say? I don't like Charlie Rose because he feels compelled to listen. <laughs> but the ones that were really fun were like Steven Spielberg was fun because Steven had never done it. He's a very close friend of mine, an old friend of mine. He's not old. I'm just saying we've been friends for a long time. So he had done Dinah Shore's show in the 70s once, and he did my talk show on King World. But a couple years later, he did Jiminy Glick. And I remember one point we did this and I said, Stephen, so when I ask you about what makes you a director, I want you to wax on and look off. And so what we did is that we, as he's looking off in the heavens and talking about the process, you see me sneak down and crawl (laughs) over to a craft service table and eat about 15 jujubes and then crawl back (laughs) and then take my seat again and say, isn't that interesting? Anyway, just cut him right off. You know, he hadn't done stuff like that. So he was all excited and he did it perfectly. Yeah. And you have to they, you have to have people either not break or they laugh and it's fine. Like, I think. Well, you know, we would edit. So we would. I remember Alec Baldwin. You know, you do one pass for about eight minutes and then you do a second pass for eight minutes. And uh, after the first eight minutes, I said to Alec, anything else I should ask you? What do you think? Like, mm-hmm. you're working yeah. together. He said, ask me about women. <laughs> I said, okay, good. So I asked him about um, Hillary Clinton. Oh, she wanted me. You know, it was all about, every woman wanted him, no matter who it was, you know, Diane Feinstein or anyone. Yeah, I imagine one of the things that must be satisfying about doing those is making some of the funniest people in the world laugh, like Mel Brooks or like Larry David, or they're laughing nearly the whole time. <laughs> they, they really are enjoying it. Yeah, you don't want to put too much of that in... It's a fine line, you know, because you don't want to make it look like you're, look, everyone's laughing at me. But when you see someone sincerely break like Mel or Larry, it's too fabulous not to include. I can tell that you are a poser. And I don't mean that negatively. A poser? Well, I mean, you, you, got, you got that Brooklyn thing, right? <laughs> the, 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 you want to shoot the swan? I think I like I'm seeing an outtake from Funny Girl. The, the accent is so <laughs> thick. I always wonder when, when, when does the real Larry David start yeah. and when does the, this Larry David stop and when do we get to the stop part? <laughs> one that I did want to ask you about just because I asked him about it when he was on this podcast is Tom Green. I think he told me about walking out on Jiminy Glick. He did. He did. He was upset. Well, what happened there? Was that, is it, was that common or? I don't know. I've never talked to Tom since then. I think that... As I recall, you know, Freddie got fingered open that day. It hadn't gotten maybe the response he hoped, so maybe he wasn't in the best mood. But he kind of, he felt like he was being attacked. And I felt badly because he was a guest in my home, my studio, and he felt that way. But we had talked in advance that we were making, there was no audience. But he felt, yeah, he felt attacked. Kind of ironic because he, you know, was famous for pranking people, but... <laughs> yeah. Which you weren't hiding anything from him. I mean, that, that this was a mean character. No, well, he'd seen it, or maybe he'd never seen yeah, it. Yeah, I don't know. You're just because you say, hey, I've seen your characters. I mean, I remember taking him for a little tour of the studio. You know, he's Canadian, so we had that bond, and he had been on my talk show, which had been with Steve Martin as a guest, and that had gone great. But either I went too far. You know, the gimmick with Jiminy Glick, the alchemy, is you have to go far but not too far. And the reality is, had Tom not left, and let's say I went too far, and now we're editing it, because we spent a long time in those edits. If I felt something was mean or inappropriate, I'd be the first one to take it out. You didn't want it to push too far or be too mean, yeah. I never would. I mean, in other interviews, I found myself going, ooh, that seems a little creepy. Let's not do that. One exception might be the uh, the one that you did with Jimmy Fallon as Donald Trump. That was pretty mean. <laughs> <laughs> No, he was Trump. Yeah, yeah, no, that was me. That was, that was a good one. That's good old-fashioned mania. Your first hundred days, would you say it's a complete embarrassment or a total failure? <laughs> I know you're very concerned about leaks, and so am I. I've actually been leaking them for over the last 20 minutes. It's un- <laughs> no, really. I, I, I'm wearing an adult diaper, and I swear to you, right now it weighs 75 pounds. If you could deport one of your kids... Eric. Wow. Not an ounce of hesitation. 
Because usually it's pretty improvised. Were you able to improvise as much in that setting or was that pretty written? Well, I always go in with some, you know, some notes, some things. But again, it's like doing a talk show. If you, I always go out, when I do a talk show, if I would go out with Letterman or Fallon or anyone, you know, I, I send out in the day before lots of pages. And But then the hope is when you go out, so you're going out gunning for bear, but when you go out and get in that chair, then you get into a conversation and maybe you hit 35% of what you planned. So in Jimmy's, I, I can't remember because, you know, we went long, they edited it, I didn't, and then it airs, so... Yeah, I mean, you 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 do the, all that preparation for these talk show appearances, and I know Steve Martin does too, and some people do, but it's probably not that common that people put that much work into these appearances, is it? According to the segment producers, no. But I don't know. You see, I think that that for me, there's no big difference with doing the first Letterman or the last Letterman. You still want to do well. You still feel embarrassed if you... Like, I often don't care how it all turns out uh, often. I mean, I care, but I mean, I don't beat myself up. If you're working with an idiot director who's no good and you know that, you still have to make the movie. What I'll do is I'll ingratiate myself and make everyone like me. And then when I go over and say, can I have a freedom take? One more take, please, (laughs) please, please, please. Well, it's getting near line. All right, Marty, we love Marty. (laughs) So then I do those takes. And then I go home and think, well, this idiot will screw it up. But I gave him everything he needed. We have a fast one, a slow one, a big one, a small one, an improvised one. I can't do anything more. So I toast myself, good for you. So that's how I feel about talk shows, that if it, you know, you could prepare and send in 25 pages, et cetera, and try to memorize certain ringers. and, And then if the host is... Either you're fighting a flu or he's fighting a flu. It doesn't go well. It's not your fault. You did everything you could. You mentioned, you know, earlier that you became a grandfather not too long ago. And I did. And you turned 70 not too long ago, I believe, as well. How do you feel like those things have changed your priorities or the, you know, the projects that you want to do? Or do do you think about that at all? Like how you approach the work? No. I don't. (laughs) I don't. Would I, upon the birth of my grandson, would I then say, I'm going to move to China for four (laughs) years? No. But as far as doing things and projects and show business, I've always found that the next thing comes along and it just seems like the smart decision, whether it pans out or not. At the time of the decision making, it seems like a great idea. And that's usually the way it's worked. I've never been in a situation of saying, Hmm, so Scorsese wants me to star in his movie, but so does Coppola. <laughs> you know, never happened. You're not, you're not choosing between things? No, no, no. You're usually choosing something that sounds fun. I mean, again, as someone who's had a career in three mediums, it's great to be able to say, okay, let's see, your last film didn't work. They're not that anxious for you in the films. Oh, they want you to star in a Broadway musical. Oh, okay, let's go. Nothing wrong with those announcements. I know? mean, even if you are able to hopefully film that that TV show, you know, in the fall, it does feel like live performance, big, huge, packed theaters is not something that's going to come back anytime soon. Does that worry you that you aren't going to be able to do these, you know, live shows with Steve in the same way that maybe you used to or or Broadway or... I wouldn't say it worries me, but it's a drag because, again, you know, when you reach a point in your career where you, you're not doing it for the rent, then you're even doing it for a more important reason, which is because you enjoy doing it so much. I mean, if you, we all do things in our lives that we don't want to do to pay bills, but when you are doing it for pure joy and the love of it and no other reason, and then that stops, you go, oh, that's a drag. I hope that comes back soon. I mean, Steve and I are booked... I think for the summer of 2021. Yeah. <laughs> the shows we're going to do this summer have been moved to the following summer. We'll see. So we end every episode of the podcast by asking comedians, who is another comedian who has really made you laugh the hardest in your life? When you think about the hardest times that you've laughed, who is who is someone who really just has gotten you? Oh, I would say Jonathan Winters. Nicholson May, Jerry Lewis, Lucille Ball. What about a time on set where you were laughing so hard that you, you know, couldn't couldn't keep it together? When you think about moments like that, is there one that comes to mind? No, not really. Steve and I were once doing a press conference in Japan for uh, Father of the Bride 2 promoting it, and for some reason we went completely hysterical. <laughs> I can't even remember why, but someone just sent me a copy of it. No, you know, I tend to... Here's how I work. I love... An easy, fun set. Loose, laughing, 
joyful set. And I do everything I can to create that atmosphere while at the same time motivated by selfishness because that atmosphere will make me better and looser and happier to be at work. A tense set, a mean director just shuts me down. I'm just thinking, when, when do I get off this <laughs> horrible mistake I committed to? By the way, I don't remember any of those experiences because I've never really had them, but fictionally it would. So in the same respect, I find myself unfocused on a movie set so that I'm loose in the set and everything, but I'll go back to my trailer and I'll kind of work on stuff. And I don't remember just me laughing so hard I could barely breathe. I'd probably be more focused <laughs> of what is my next line. I would know? guess that people break more around you than you break around other people. I don't know about that. I mean, we certainly laughed a lot in Three Amigos, but I've laughed in all these movies. I've had fun in all these movies because when you make a movie, that's the last control you have. You can't control what the film's going to be. It's not in your hand. It's in a director and an editor's hands of what it will be. And you don't know if the film might be fantastic and no one wants to see it. And then for a couple of years, it's perceived as a failure until it's re-released and now everyone loves it. So you can't control any of that, but you can control the actual experience of doing the job. And that you have more power over making it a joyful one or a drag. Well, I think those chimes mean that our, our time here is done. Yeah, I guess so. Thank you so much for doing this, and I've just been such a huge fan of yours for so long. Uh, thank you, Matthew. I'm not sure if I can call you Marty yet, but... You can call me Marty. I'm giving you oh, the permission. Thanks. Well, thanks, Marty. I'm 70, no rush. <laughs> Stay safe. You too. And I'm looking forward to uh, when you can get back to work very uh, soon. Thank you very much. All right. Have a good one. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, as you can hear, that was all the time I had with Martin Short, but it was worth every minute. Season 3 of Only Murders in the Building is streaming on Hulu starting today, August 8th, and it features both Meryl Streep and Paul Rudd, so it basically has to be great. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram and threads, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you very soon. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.